Chapter 14 of Cherry Ames, Island Nurse. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Cherry Ames, Island Nurse by Helen Wells. Chapter 14. The Silver of the Mine. The next morning after breakfast, the four, Cherry and Lloyd, Meg and Dr. Mackenzie, stood in the bright sun on the brow of the cliff, peering down upon the sparkling waters of the little bay at Rogue's Cave. Dressed in sturdy clothes and equipped with ropes and miners' safety lamps on lanyards round their necks and knives in sheaths at their belts, the four could have been taken for a party of spelunkers, cave explorers. Prepared for any emergency, Lloyd had a compass, and from his belt hung a geologist's hammer and pick and binoculars. The tide isn't low enough yet to get into Rogue's Cave without waiting, Lloyd said. Then let's start with the entrance to the old mine, suggested Dr. Mack. In silence, they made their way back along the cliffs and set off up the big hill of the abandoned mine. A gentle breeze rippled the grass and flirted the brightly colored scarves of the girls. In the blue, cloudless sky, a naval helicopter from the nearby base hovered offshore, searching for the bodies of the four men missing from the heron and now believed to be drowned. The presence of the whirlybird was ignored by the group as they climbed the hill. None of them wanted to be reminded that the chances were against their finding old Jock and Tammy or the missing men, either in the mine or the cave. But Cherry had convinced Lloyd and Meg and Dr. Mack that the search was well worth a try. The fact that Ramsay, the gardener, had found the heron's lifeboat high, dry, and undamaged on the sand dunes on a beach north of the cliffs was taken as a hopeful sign that the men had reached shore. That morning, after a good night's rest, Cherry, Lloyd, Meg, Dr. Mack, who had come over at Meg's invitation, and Sir Ian had all been present at breakfast in the Barclay dining room. Sir Ian, who had not been told that old Jock and Tammy were missing, was in the best of spirits. He had no sooner sat down at the table than he announced, I am expecting James Broderick this morning. Just after the telephone line was repaired earlier, Mr. Broderick called and left word with Higgins that he was flying over from St. John's. Mr. Broderick had an appointment to see me the day of the storm, but couldn't make it, of course. Mr. Broderick is flying over this morning, Lloyd said, startled. Could I ask what he's coming for? Ecod, answered his uncle, but since it's a matter strictly between him and me, there's no need to tell ye, nephew. There was a glint in Sir Ian's eye, as though he were exhilarated over the coming meeting. Cherry had never seen the mine owner look stronger or better than he did that morning. His face was wonderfully alive, and he held himself proudly. Why, he reminds me of descriptions I've read in old stories of knights just about to go into battle, Cherry thought. It's as though the prospect of the battle stimulated them and made them feel full of confidence. Sir Ian had eaten his breakfast without making any further comment. Then he had gone off to the library to do some paperwork, he said. He was not to be disturbed under any circumstances. After he had left, Cherry had shown Lloyd, Meg, and Dr. Mack old Sir Ian's secret journal and the leather pouch containing the torn page and the silver. Then she had told of the night in the tower room and Tammy's disappearance. Her suggestion that they search the old mine and Rogue's cave for old Jock and Tammy, and at the same time solve the mystery of the silver, had been received with enthusiasm by her three listeners. 
I think it's about time we found out what this whole thing is about, Lloyd had declared at once. As they pushed their way to the top of the hill now, each of them was torn between hope one moment and despair the next of what they might or might not find in the underground tunnels. They reached the summit. Meg and the doctor pushed ahead through the bushes and began to examine the big rock which Cherry had found so interesting on the day little Joe Tweed had vanished, as if by magic. Do look, Lloyd, Meg said. This is the oddest sort of rock. I don't remember ever having seen it here before, not even when we came up here as children. Yes, it has a very peculiar texture, Dr. Max said, like pumice. Lloyd looked at it for the first time. It is pumice, he replied at once. That's the rock I was telling all of you about, Cherry said. Only it has sunk much deeper into the ground since I saw it last, probably washed down by the heavy rain. Turning to Lloyd, she asked, Did you say it was pumice? Suddenly she remembered a rock she had held in her hand when she and Tammy were in the tower. It had been feather light. Why, that's where the entrance of the mine used to be, exclaimed Meg. Someone has taken away the old boards that used to cover it and set a rock over it. Lloyd caught Cherry's eye and they exchanged a significant glance. They both knew the nature of that rock. With a wink at Cherry, Lloyd announced, Stand back, everybody, while I give a remarkable demonstration of weightlifting. Suiting his action to his words, he grasped the mass of grayish-colored rock and rolled it aside with little effort. Ah, a Hercules, cried Dr. Mack, laughing. As you see, explained Lloyd in a carnival hawker's nasal twang, it's light as foam, for that is precisely what it is, foam spewed up by a volcano and hardened into rock. It's not native to the island. Somebody brought it here from a faraway volcanic region. The three applauded Lloyd. Well, there's the mouth of the mine shaft, he said, pointing at their feet. They all looked down into the cavity which had been covered by the rock. The opening was just large enough for a man to enter. They tied rope about their waists, mountain climber fashion. Lloyd, Cherry, Meg, Dr. Mack, in that order. Then Lloyd eased himself down into the hole, the bottom of which was perhaps six feet below the surface of the ground. Okay, he told them in a moment, there's a ladder leading down a little way ahead. It's new from the looks of it. Someone built it recently. Definitely, this shaft is being used. Switch on your lamps up there, he ordered. Come on, Cherry. Meg, you and Doc follow. Cherry slid down into the cavity. Lloyd was already descending the ladder a few feet in front of her. With her heart thumping in her throat, she slowly, rung by rung, went down to the top level of the mine, where Lloyd stood on the dirt floor of the tunnel. The others joined them, and they began exploring the tunnel by the light of their lamps. The tunnel extended to the right and the left, but only for a short distance in each direction. Water dripped from the roof, forming little pools. The earthen floor was muddy and marked with many footprints. Men have been going and coming through here regularly, remarked Lloyd. Those are men's footprints, as you can readily see, and that's the only thing they can possibly mean. Men enter the shaft by rolling away the rock. When little Joe Tweed disappeared that day, Cherry, he must have done just that. They came down the ladder, which was made probably to replace an old rotted one, and they go... He played his flashlight about. Another ladder in front of them led downward. Here's where they go, Lloyd said, and began at once to lower himself on it. They all descended two more ladders before they came to the place where the central shaft of the old mine ended, and there was no further means of descent. As before, the tunnel extended to the right and to the left, 
but this time there was another tunnel cutting in at an angle and sloping gently in a southeasterly direction so lloyd told them upon consulting his compass i guess it's a case of counting eeny meeny miny mo or isn't it engineer barclay asked meg it is not miss barclay returned lloyd that tunnel running in a southeasterly direction goes toward rogue's cave notice the footprints and notice all the shoring is new wood notice that the tunnel itself has been recently dug and let me remind you that cherry told us that old jock wanted to find out what was being smuggled out through rogue's cave lloyd did the men whoever they are dig this tunnel so they could get to the cave cherry asked exactly replied lloyd you see there was never a tunnel that ran to the cave from this mine there was just the shaft which you see goes straight down from the top of the hill then there were tunnels running to the north and south from this shaft as you saw when we descended with lloyd in the lead the four walked down the sloping tunnel the glimmer of their lamps guiding them in the darkness the journey down the tunnel seemed endless to cherry but lloyd said they had gone perhaps only a quarter of a mile when they came upon a wall of stone which had been broken through to form a low jagged doorway lloyd bent his head and was on the point of entering the passage beyond when he drew back quickly there's a light down there a little way and i heard people talking he said in a whisper filled with suppressed excitement cherry felt her spine tingle she was so anxious to find out what was beyond the doorway that it was all she could do to restrain her impulse to rush past lloyd meg and dr mackenzie started to whisper questions shh lloyd warned them don't talk follow me without making a sound one by one they went through the doorway they saw immediately the glow of a light and moved toward it very very slowly then just beyond a turning on their left was a sort of large alcove off the tunnel from the alcove came the sound of men's voices talking in a dull quiet way put out your lights lloyd said to cherry and the other two then in the dark very cautiously keeping close to the wall of the tunnel they crept up to the entrance and peered into the alcove the place had been blasted out of the rock and was quite large though it seemed smaller than it was for piled up like cordwood about the floor were sackfuls of what was unmistakably rocks among the heaps four men sat on the floor about a wooden box playing cards by the light of a miner's lamp that man on the right is little joe tweed cherry quickly whispered in lloyd's ear yes i see him lloyd whispered back the sea will be calm enough to-night little joe was saying to bring our boat into rogue's cave i want to get this silver out of here by tonight. i've worked out a place to have it crushed and the silver extracted with no questions asked we'll block up the tunnel before we leave so no one will get wise to the fact we've discovered a silver mine worth a fortune then we'll turn up in st john's with a horrible tale of suffering of being lost at sea riding out the storm and finally reaching shore for several moments cherry had the eerie feeling that someone was looking at them now letting her glance rove about the room she gave a joyful little gasp upon encountering two eyes staring at her out of what she had mistaken for a sack of rocks in the shadowy corner sitting on the floor with his back against the wall of the alcove trussed up with rope and gagged was old jock cameron she nodded to him to let him know that she had seen him then clutching lloyd's arm so he would not move and make a noise she said in barely audible tones look closely lloyd you'll see mr cameron you have a knife if you can get close enough or he can wiggle this way you can cut him loose 
Lloyd answered by squeezing her hand. Leaning over, he said, Untie the rope around your waist. Tell Meg and Dr. Mack to do the same. When they were all freed from one another, Lloyd said softly, Now here's my plan of action, everybody. Cherry, you and Meg stand against the wall and don't make a sound. Doc, get out your knife. Meg, let me have your knife. As soon as I've cut old Jock free, I'll whistle just once, softly. That's your cue, Doc, to come out fighting. We'll rush little Joe and his men. None of them seems to be armed. I can't see anything that looks like a gun. Can you, Doc? Dr. Mack peered at the men a moment. No. He took his knife out of the sheath. Well, I'm all set. Now you, Cherry and Meg, said Lloyd, you get out of here as fast as you can when Dr. Mack and I rush those men in there. We're not going to use our knives, but we are going to try to frighten them enough so they won't give us any trouble. But the doc and I don't want you girls in this, so get out fast. Do we go back the way we came? asked Meg. No, follow the new tunnel, said Lloyd. It has to lead out through the cave. The smuggling is out through the cave, remember? Just be sure, by playing your lights over the tunnel walls and the wood, that it is the newly dug tunnel. It probably leads right into one of the tunnels in the cave that you know, Meg. Everybody all set? Lloyd asked. The three said they were. Hang on to these, Lloyd told Cherry, giving her his binoculars and geologist's hammer and pick. With that, he dropped to the floor of the tunnel and started crawling toward old Jock in the alcove. The light was dim and the place was full of shadows. As the three waited, they heard little Joe and the others still talking. Have you figured out yet what to do with old man Cameron, little Joe? asked one. The storm caused a lot of accidents, some of them fatal, suggested little Joe. This was greeted with general laughter. A whining voice complained, Sure, little Joe, that takes care of the old man, but what about the kid? That night in the storm, when we ran after the old man and caught him, we shouldn't have bothered taking the kid. Besides, the kid got away anyway, a regular eel. Never mind the kid, little Joe brushed the matter aside. He probably drowned. You told me yourself you saw him disappear just before you reached the cave. Rogue's cave was filled with water way up over the ledge, you said. Yes, but you can't be sure he fell in, the voice whined. Forget it, snapped little Joe. Tammy, oh my goodness, Cherry murmured despairingly. Poor little Tammy, drowned in Rogue's cave. Then it struck her that perhaps he had not drowned at all. Tammy had disappeared just before he had reached the cave, the man had said. Cherry focused her attention on Lloyd, crawling as slowly as a snail toward old Jock. He had only a little way to go. Even as Cherry watched, Lloyd was reaching out with his knife to cut the rope that bound old Jock's ankles. Now, Lloyd had pulled himself alongside old Jock and was cutting the rope that bound his hands behind him. He handed the knife to old Jock and took Meg's knife in his hand. Old Jock ripped the gag off his mouth. It had all been done so slowly and quietly that it was like watching a silent film in slow motion. With a start, Cherry heard a short whistle. It was Lloyd's cue to Dr. Mack, and the doctor sprang from his place against the wall and darted into the alcove to take his place beside Lloyd and old Jock. Little Joe and his three men got up so quickly they knocked over the box on which they were playing cards. Then, all together, they started toward Lloyd, Dr. Mack, and old Jock, who held their knives menacingly in their hands. Meg grabbed Cherry's arm as the men rushed toward each other and started to grapple. We must go. Lloyd said we mustn't stay here, she said. 
I know, Cherry said. They switched on their miner's lamps and started off. Meg led the way, flashing her lamp on the walls and boards to see if they were following the newly dug tunnel. They raced along for quite some distance. Then Meg stopped suddenly. Look, she said to Cherry, this is where the new part ends. The two girls shone the lamps over the sides of the tunnel, and they could see clearly where the old shoring was next to the new. Beyond the newly dug part, the tunnel continued, but it had been dug and shored up long ago. Listen, Cherry put her hand on Meg's arm. The two of them stood still for a moment. I hear the pounding of waves on the shore, Cherry said. Don't you, Meg? Yes, Meg answered. We are near Rogue's Cave. Meg, we can't be far from the hidey hole, can we? asked Cherry. I know what you're thinking, Meg said. Tammy. Tammy may be in the hidey hole. They raced down the tunnel, the sound of the sea growing louder and louder in their ears all the time. At last they came to the passage that Cherry remembered from her visit with Meg. They were not far from the hidey hole. Cherry began calling, Tammy, Tammy, where are you? Meg was infected by Cherry's desperately hopeful cry that Tammy must be there in the hidey hole or in the cave somewhere. Meg took up the call and both girls shouted at the top of their lungs. The tunnel echoed and re-echoed their call of Tammy, Tammy, Tammy. Suddenly ahead of them, a little door screeched over the stones. Their lights picked up a small figure in sou'wester, oilskins, and high rubber boots emerging from the hidey hole. He cried, Meg, oh, Cherry, and rushing forward, flung his arms around them. Half an hour later, a dismal-appearing group, muddy and dirty from head to foot, went trooping into the hall of Barkley House. They made a great clatter. Cherry and Meg, holding Tammy's hands, marched in first. Then came little Joe Tweed and the three sullen members of the Heron's crew, their hands tied behind their backs. Bringing up the rear were Lloyd, Dr. Mackenzie, and old Jock, with bags of native silver flung over their shoulders, looking like country peddlers. All the men were dirty, their clothes torn, and bore bruises and scratches. Higgins, on his way downstairs from the second floor, was stopped in his tracks at the amazing apparition. "'Where's Uncle Ian?' asked Lloyd at once. "'He's in the library with Mr. Broderick, sir,' replied Higgins, mouth agape. Just then they heard a door open and Sir Ian's voice say, "'You may bankrupt me if you like, Mr. Broderick, but you'll never get control of the Balfour Mines.' "'I wouldn't be too sure of that,' said Mr. Broderick firmly." I know what I'm talking about, and ye don't, said Sir Ian. For the last couple of days, I've been carefully checking over everything I possess. My share in the mines right now will pay just about what I owe the bank. Barclay House and everything in it belong to my daughter, Meg. I don't own anything else. Either ye take the payments on the money ye loaned me, and I'll pay several thousand a quarter out of my income, or ye leave it. Suppose I choose to leave it, said Broderick. Then you'll be cutting off your nose to spite your face, declared Sir Ian. Ye won't get your money back, and ye won't gain control of the mines either. I don't want to press you too much, Broderick said, sounding slightly disconcerted. You've been a great man in Canadian mining for too many years, and your family before you. I admire your courage, holding on to a family dynasty in these modern times. I'm much obliged to ye, said Sir Ian. I shall act towards ye in good faith. That ye know. Dinna press me, and ye'll get every penny coming to ye. Well, Sir Ian, I'm a modern businessman, declared Broderick. 
I have little patience with outdated methods of mining and paying debts. Unless you can clear up your debts soon, I'll have to take further steps. Ye've warned me, said Sir Ian. Now good day to ye, sir. None of the group in the hall had moved. They had listened in fascinated silence. The next instant, Mr. Broderick came striding toward them. He halted abruptly at the entrance to the hallway. Lloyd, bag over shoulder, went up to him. You won't have to wait long, Mr. Broderick, Lloyd said. You'll be paid your money within a very short time, I guarantee it. So it won't be necessary for you to take further steps to collect your money. That's it, my lad, shouted old Jock encouragingly to Lloyd. The Barclays have a silver mine. It's a bonanza. Is that true, Mr. Barclay? Mr. Broderick asked, turning to Lloyd. Every word of it, replied Lloyd. The noise brought Sir Ian storming out of the library. What in the world is going on here? He demanded, irate and amazed. Before anyone could answer, Mr. Broderick spoke up. Sir Ian, he said ruefully, it appears you have a silver mine, a bonanza. And as your nephew just told me, I'll have the money you owe me very soon. My business definitely is over now. Good day, Sir Ian, Mr. Barclay. Nodding to Meg and Cherry, he started toward the door. Then he turned around suddenly and went up to little Joe Tweed. Mr. Tweed, the other day when you and my pilot, Jerry Ives, came into the coffee shop in St. John's, you said you wanted to make me a proposition. Well, I told you then that any proposition coming from you was bound to be crooked, and I refused to let you say anything. Afterward, my pilot told me you would run into him on the wharf and began talking about having a lot of native silver to sell. He couldn't get rid of you until he had brought you to see me. Now I know where you must have got the silver. You smuggled it out of the Barclays mine. With that, Mr. Broderick started once again toward the door, which Higgins hurried to open, and strode outside. Jerry Ives was waiting in one of the company bugs to take his boss to the Balfour airfield and fly him back to St. John's. For several minutes after Mr. Broderick's departure, the Barclay Hall was in complete turmoil, with Little Joe shouting that Sir Ian had always had it in for him, even when he, Little Joe, was working in the mines, and he was going to fight the Barclays in court. Little Joe's men started to shout, too, and there was a great deal of shouting all round before Smith, the chauffeur, and Ramsey, the gardener, got the men in a car and took them off to the chief of police of the island. When they had gone, Sir Ian exclaimed, "'Now, ye people, tell me what this is all about. A silver mine, smugglers, those sacks ye've brought, Jock here with Tammy, the lot of ye all bedraggled. I've never seen the likes of such a hullabaloo.' I'll tell you, uncle, said Lloyd. He turned upon Cherry an admiring look that ignored tangled curls, the streaks of dirt, bedraggled clothes. And he said, since Miss Cherry Ames is the real heroine of this occasion, I think she should begin the story. It's called The Silver of the Mine. The story that Cherry began was taken up by old Jock after they had all washed and cleaned up and were sitting comfortably in the library waiting for Higgins to announce luncheon. Old Jock told of becoming suspicious at first of something going on in the old mine and in Rogue's Cave when the series of accidents occurred in Number 2 Mine. Every time we dug in the direction of the old mine, Old Jock said, something happened, and the same two men always were involved. At least, the other men reported carelessness or negligence by one or the other of these two miners. They were from St. John's, and I noticed they were very friendly with Little Joe Tweed. 
I began to wonder if those two miners had a reason for keeping us from extending number two mine any nearer the old mine. Old Jock explained that a vein of ore which had been opened might very well extend into the old mine. His vague suspicions led him to do a bit of investigating. Soon he discovered that the heron was frequently offshore. Then he saw a heavily laden rowboat leaving Rogue's Cave. Next, he discovered that the old mine shaft had been repaired. He had gone down one day, only to find two men on guard. He had never been able to get near the alcove where he had been found trussed up. In fact, he had no idea that a vein of silver had actually been found. Of course, he had suspected that some valuable mineral might have been discovered. On the other hand, it was equally possible that the old mine and Rogue's Cave were simply being used as a warehouse for smuggling anything of value. "'Why didn't ye let me know about this?' asked Sir Ian. "'Ah, that I could not, Ian,' old Jock said. "'I knew what terrible tension ye have been under for so long, and ye were a sick man. I had to try to clear everything up without involving ye in a lot of worry and anxiety.' Finally, he had decided to stow away on the heron. When and if a boat was sent into Rogue's Cave to pick up cargo, old Jock would manage to get aboard it, for the boat was large with a covered stern beneath which he could hide. He had taken particular note of this when he had watched it while pretending to be fishing all those times. He had asked Tammy to wait for him in the tower because it was nearest to Rogue's Cave and perfectly safe. If old Jock found little Joe and his crew actually engaged in illegal activities, he would simply have Tammy telephone a message to his grandmother. Old Jock and his wife Janet had it all planned what she would tell the chief of police. I thought Tammy could phone his grandma without arousing Ramsey's curiosity, old Jock explained. But if I went in at night to use his phone, he'd wonder right away what it was all about. But Tammy phoning his grandma of a night, well, Ramsay would think right away that the boy was in trouble with his grandmother because he'd stayed out too late. Well, continued old Jock, the storm came and worked havoc with my plans. He had got into the boat when it was put over the side of the heron the night of the storm. In the excitement, his presence had not been discovered, and the big rowboat had made it to shore. Old Jock knew that he had to get to the tower, and he had started out. Everything had been all right, so he thought. No one had seen him, and he had raced along the cliffs. Suddenly, as he reached the cliffs near the tower, he had been grabbed from behind. He had cried out in surprise, and then with pain, as he grappled with two men. "'I did hear ye then, Granda,' cried Tammy. "'Miss Cherry, we did hear Granda that night.' "'Yes, Tammy, I now know that we did.' And I ran down from the tower, continued Tammy. Some men caught me, and they took me down the old mine shaft. But I kicked and bit and scratched, and I got away. Tammy, dear, said Meg, do you mean to say that you found your way in the dark to the hidey hole in Rogue's Cave? Tammy shook his head. No, Miss Meg, one of the men was chasing me, and he had a light. But I could dodge out of his way, even if he could run faster. He chased me almost as far as the cave, then I crouched down behind a pillar. He looked around, but he didn't find me, so he left. It wasn't far from the hidey hole, so I went in there and hid. You mean to say, Tammy, Cherry said, that you haven't had anything to eat since that night? Tammy smiled. Of course not, he answered. Grandma gave me some sandwiches and apples to put in my coat pocket. I wish somebody would tell me, a poor medical man, said Dr. Mack, 
how little Joe and his men found the vein of silver in the old mine. I'll explain it, said Sir Ian. Everyone looked at him, rather surprised that he should know the answer. And Cherry knows, added Sir Ian. I do, exclaimed Cherry. Sir Ian nodded. Of course ye found out about the real silver mine first, and the salted mine second. But little Joe, like most of the Balfourians, knew the story about how one George Barclay, years ago, was fooled by a grafter who salted our old abandoned mine. Now, when little Joe was working for me, he used to spend a lot of time fishing out in Rogue's Cave Bay. He must have explored both the cave and the old mine from one end to the other. He discovered some of the salted stuff, no doubt. Then, one day, he discovered a rock that he knew was the real thing, and he went quietly to work. But I can't see. Of course, I'm just a medical man, said Dr. Mack, how the vein of silver could have been missed during all the years that the old mine was in operation. I can answer that, said Lloyd. You see, the old mine had veins of iron ore that ran north and south. When they were exhausted, the mine was abandoned. Yet just fifty feet away from the tunnel was this vein, this wonderfully rich vein, of native silver. The vein of silver begins in that alcove where we found Jock Cameron. It slopes gradually downward close to the tunnel in Rogue's Cave and becomes submarine. There's no telling how far out the vein runs beneath the ocean. Old Sir Ian, my grandfather, found some rocks of native silver in the cave walls without ever discovering the vein itself. That we know thanks to Cherry, who, with Tammy, found the journal and the pouch of silver in the tower room. Since my grandfather did not find the vein, and surely had heard later of the caves having been salted, he probably decided that he'd found some of the salted silver. Higgins came in. Luncheon is served, he announced. Sir Ian offered his arm to Cherry. Allow me to take you in, Cherry, for ye are the guest of honor. The old mine is going to have a new name. The Balfour Silver Mine will be officially named the Cherry Ames Silver Mine. Three cheers for Cherry Ames, shouted Tammy. Yes, indeed, three cheers for Cherry, cried Meg and Lloyd, Old Jock, and Dr. Mack. When they were all seated at the table, Cherry looked round at the friendly faces and her heart felt warm inside her. Thank you all, she said. You have made me very happy. When I go back home, I shall take back with me wonderful memories of Balfour Island. What do you mean, when you go back home? asked Meg. Why, you have to stay ever so long. You have to be maid of honor at Douglas's and my wedding. Isn't that so, Dr. Douglas Mackenzie? Absolutely, Dr. Mack agreed firmly. Ah, uh, she'll make a fair maid of honor, won't she, Ian? asked old Jock and she'll bring us luck for sure with the cellar mine. That she will, Jock, said Sir Ian, smiling warmly at his old friend. End of chapter 14 End of Cherry Ames, Island Nurse by Helen Wells